Good morning. This week, we're feeding the homeless again. We're back on, on Wednesday. Except for Spelling Bee. <laughs> Wednesday, or uh, Women's Bible Study. Again, we'll start up again after the first of the year. Along with the Men's Bible Study. We're going to go through the book Radical Prayer by Manny Mill. It's an amazing book. Youth Night. Again, we'll also start up after the first of the year. And then sign up for emails once a week. We send out an email of what's going on. Or you can find it on the website. So, with that, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. I thank you for this time to come together to learn more about who you are. About your son, Jesus. Your sacrifice on the cross. About your forgiveness of our sins about your love, your mercy, your grace, about what salvation means um, and how you view that. Just ask that you would guide us through this study, that your words would be spoken. You would um, speak to each of our hearts right where we're at. You know what we're going through. You know the desires we each have, the struggles we each have. Just ask you would meet us right where we are. It's in Jesus' mighty, mighty name that I pray all these things. Amen. Amen. So we are going to be, we're going to start off in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We would have been in Romans chapter 15, but we're going to take a detour. So this week, Friday afternoon, we got a phone call that um, a man in our community took his five-year-old daughter to Casey Jones Park and shot her in the head and then turned and shot himself. And that happened right here in our community. And that brings up lots of questions um, as to why, what happens, how does God view all this, and God does explain it throughout his whole word. And that's what we're going to go through today. What does that mean when a, when a child dies? Um, can there be forgiveness for that kind of sin? If you were ever part of the Catholic Church, the Catholic Church taught that suicide was the unforgivable sin, but the Bible doesn't back that up. We're going to go through that. Um, and then we're going to go through where is God in all this? How can this thing happen? Um, and yeah, where is God? And to get to the last question, God is still on the throne. Jesus is still king. He is still ruling and reigning in heaven. Um, and he is still watching over each one of our lives. So, with that, we are going to start in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. You don't have to go to them. We're just going to go over these two verses fairly quickly. They will be up on the screen. Um, 
So second, second Timothy chapter three, verses 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So all scripture is inspired by God and God uses it to teach us what is true, to help us realize what is wrong in our life, corrects us um, and prepares us to do the good work that God has called us to. So we can use scripture for how to live our lives, to guide us. But this word all here, you know, many people joke when I look it up in the Greek or in the Hebrew, all means all. Yes, while that is true, there's different contexts to the word all. And some people take this to mean each individual. Each individual sentence in the Bible I can make a doctrine out of. I can determine how God is going to rule and reign or what he's saying here. But I would caution you, I can take you to an area of the Bible that says there is no God. But when I put that into context, the sentence before that says, a fool in his heart says there is no God. So you see, I can't just take all scripture, each individual sentence and make a a doctrine out of it. This is how you should live your life. But when I take all as in the whole scripture, and that's what the Bible's saying here, the whole scripture from Genesis to Revelation, then... I can use that for how do I live my life? How does God govern? What is God's character? And we've been over this quite a few times that God is a very loving God, that he loves us so much that he sent his one and only son down to this earth to die for us, that there is no greater love than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And that's what Jesus did for us, that he loves us that much. That's who God is. And that same God is the God in the Old Testament as he is in the New Testament. God's character doesn't change. Who he is doesn't change. God is love, the Bible tells us. And that never changes. While our perspective of that may change, he never changes. <clears throat> so it's important that when we talk about areas or doctrine or how does God govern or how does God view certain things that we're looking at the whole scripture. So we're going to do that again today just as we always do. So when we hear about tragedies, it does spark all kinds of emotions. Um, and our emotions and our feelings are real, but they don't always line up with God's word, right? They don't always line up with who God is. You know, For example, when you hear of a tragedy like this, your mind could go to judging, you know, how could a person do that? I would never do something like that, right? But I would caution you, we've been over this, God says not to judge. Apart from God, there is no limit to the evil any one of us is capable of. Um, so to say that I would never do such a thing would be judging that you're better than that person, that you're on a higher standing, you're closer to God in some way, shape, or form. Um, and I would very much caution you from doing that. That, that is a, a very dangerous place to be. And we'll get into more of this. But God tells us not to do certain things for a reason, for our own good mostly, um, because it's not good for us. So they can lead us down dangerous roads and dangerous paths. 
And mostly, when we're judging others, it is a sin, and sin separates us from God, and it distances us from God. And apart from God, there is far enough apart from God, there is no amount of evil we are not capable of, each and every one of us. So, be careful about comparing yourself with others. Um, to go further into it, this man was um, involved in a church, in one of the local churches here. Is seen as a Christian, is known as, is quoting scripture and, and encouraging others in their relationship with God. It was important to him that he spent time in church, that his daughter spent time in church. So how does that happen? How do you get to this place? This man who is a professing, believing Christian gets to this place where this could happen. And I would tell you that it starts one step at a time, far enough apart from God. It starts with knowing his word, but not obeying it. This man had, had, had COVID and had it, while well, many of us have had COVID, some of us had it more extreme than the other, and he had it very extreme. It was three months of, of COVID. Um, it got so bad he was in the hospital. He was unconscious in a coma. He came out of that, but had lost his job. He was in a custody battle over his daughter and lost lots of ground there when, while he was in the coma. Became isolated um, and known to indulge in or take part in many conspiracies. And while we just got over this in Romans, that we are to respect authority, that we are to obey our government all the way up until our government crosses the line where it does not line up with God's word, that we are also to respect that government. And why does God tell us that? Just because he wants to control us and, and make us play some game? No, no, no. God tells us that because that's what's best for us. Because on the other end of that, that disrespect for authority, that disrespect for government leads you down these other paths, these paths of conspiracies, these paths of they're out to get me, these paths of these bigger, um, bigger ideas that aren't true. Remember, we're either walking with God or we're walking away from God. We're either walking with God or we're walking with the enemy. There is no in-between. There's no neutral ground. There's no I strayed off the path. I'm a good person. It doesn't work that way. God tells us all these things for a reason. And the reason is to keep us safe. The reason is to keep us from hurting others. And that when we choose not to obey God, when we choose to say, no, God, this part of scripture I don't have to listen to. This part of your word isn't relevant in my life. This part doesn't apply to me. We hurt ourselves and others every single time. So God tells us this isn't just for something to say. God tells it very importantly. And we should take all of his words seriously and obey them. Remember, far enough apart from God, there is no limit to the amount of sin we are capable of. So... When we're going to look at this, we're going to look at the whole scripture, all of it, from Genesis to Revelation. We won't be able to cover it all today, but we are going to start in John chapter 3. And we're going to go through quite a few verses here. And this is, this is important. This is what is our, our faith based on? What's the foundation of our faith? And the foundation of our faith is summed up right here. This is while Jesus was alive. 
a man, a Pharisee, a religious leader, came to him one night and, and wanted to know more about him. And he came to him at night because he didn't want the other religious leaders to know that he had come and, and sought out Jesus' counsel because these religious leaders were supposed to be the top of the top, the, the smartest. They didn't need anyone to advise them. They already knew it all. But obviously this man saw something in Jesus and didn't understand and saw that there was something more. So secretly at night, he goes and sees Jesus and begins to ask him questions. And Jesus speaks to him very plainly, though he doesn't understand it. So we'll read through that. John chapter 3, starting here in verse 1. There was a man named Nicodemus, a Jewish religious leader who was a Pharisee. After dark, one evening, he came to speak with Jesus. Rabbi, he said, we all know that God has sent you to teach us. Your miraculous signs are evidence that God is with you. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What do you mean? exclaimed Nicodemus. How can an old man go back into his mother's womb and be born again? Jesus replied, I assure you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit. Humans can reproduce only human life, but the Holy Spirit gives birth to spiritual life. So don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wants, just as you can hear the wind, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going, so you can't explain how people are born of the Spirit. So we'll slow down here for a minute and look at a, a couple things. So Jesus says here in verse 5, I assure you no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water, number one, and of the Spirit, number two. So being born of water here is of human life. You know, when you're born... You're in your mom's stomach, you're in the amniotic fluid. What's a common saying that gets said before a woman goes into labor? My water broke, right? That's what Jesus is speaking of here. You're born of water. You're born humanly. We're born, we have a physical life. <clears throat> but now, the second part is that you're born of the Spirit. That you've lived your human life, however long that can be. While you hear of some coming to know Jesus at the age of of five and being baptized and asking him into their lives. Others, it doesn't happen until they're 30 or 60 or 90. It's the point in your life at which you ask Jesus into your life. There's a difference between having this head knowledge of who Jesus is and having a heart knowledge. Well, I've lived most of my life having a head knowledge of Jesus. It wasn't until the age of 30 that I had a heart knowledge. And that heart knowledge that believing in my heart that Jesus was God changed my life, changed the way I lived. I once lived this way, walking away from God, and now I've turned around, I've done an about face, and I've lived a life walking with God. And that's what Jesus is speaking of here. That you were born physically, uh, human life, reproduced human life, but the Holy Spirit gives life that is eternal. And it's that second life, that's that, that believing in Jesus asking him into your life that gives you eternal life with him, that saves you, that forever 
you were in his hands. You were in the maker's hands and he will never, ever let you go. So we'll continue on here in John chapter three, verse nine. How are these things possible? Nicodemus asked. Jesus replied, you are a respected Jewish teacher and yet you don't understand these things. I assure you, we tell you what we know and have seen, and yet you won't believe our testimony. But if you don't believe me when I tell you about earthly things, how can you possibly believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ever gone to heaven and returned, but the Son of Man has come down from heaven. And as Moses lifted up the bronze snake on a pole in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him will have eternal life. So everyone who believes in him, anyone and everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. For God so loved For God loved the world so much that he gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. God sent his Son into the world, not to judge the world, but to save the world through him. So everyone who believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Jesus didn't come into this world to judge it, but he came to save it. Not to judge or condemn it, but he came to save it. He came to save the world. And we are saved through our belief in him, through our belief that he died on the cross for each and every one of our sins, that death couldn't hold him, that he rose again. And when we believe that, we are saved. When we believe that in our hearts and our lives are changed, we are saved. And there's nothing that can undo that, nothing that can turn that around. He doesn't come into our lives and then leave us. That never happens. He'll never leave us. He'll never abandon us. So John... Chapter 3, verse 18. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him, but anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only Son. So the only judgment that takes place is not believing in God's one and only Son. That's it. That's the only judgment to take place. And the judgment is based on this fact. God's light His son came into the world, but people loved the darkness more than the light, for their actions were evil. All who do evil hate the light and refuse to go near it, for fear their sins will be exposed. But those who do what is right come to the light, so others can see that they are doing what God wants. So Jesus takes time to explain to Nicodemus all the words in red on the screen. Those are all Jesus' words himself. So when Jesus speaks, when you want to know what is the character of God or what does God think or, or, or what would God say, it's right here in the Bible and the words are in red. Those are Jesus' words himself. So when Jesus tells you that when we believe in him, we are saved, that we will have eternal life with him, done deal. End of story. Paul in Romans, and we've been over this a few times, but Paul in Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, you don't have to go there, it'll be up on the screen, but this sums it up. This makes it very clear. 
what Jesus was telling Nicodemus, how this could take place, Paul sums it up here using God's words. Remember, we started off, all scripture is inspired by God. While men, like Paul, may have wrote it down, God is the one that told them what to write down. God's the one that led them and guided them um, through it all. So, Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is by believing in your heart that you are made right with God, and it is by confessing with your mouth that you are saved. So this is a two-step process, believing in your heart and confessing with your mouth. Like I told you earlier, I believed in my head that Jesus was God, that there was the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I believed all of that, but it didn't change the way I lived. Having a head knowledge is not enough. It has to sink into your heart. It has to change the way you live. It has to give you a desire to live for him greater than the desire to live in this world. And while that you may wrestle with that all throughout your life, just as Paul did, we've read through that, how Paul struggled with sin all throughout his life. doesn't mean you're a bad person or a bad Christian. It just means that you're in the battle, that you're in the midst of it, and that the enemy, while he can't kill you or destroy you or take away your salvation or your eternal life, the enemy can make you ineffective. The enemy can make you um, no longer a light for Jesus. The enemy can make you a bad witness. The enemy can get you out of position, not doing the things that God has called you to do, but over here distracted with some worldly things. And that's what the enemy seeks to do. Kill, steal, and destroy. That's what the enemy is after. The enemy wants to... Um, remove us, remove our relationship, our fellowship with God, wants to separate us from God. And the best way for the enemy to separate us from God is in sin, to get in, in and live in sin. We went over the story of the man who was hired to curse the nation of Israel, and he could, wouldn't curse him. He couldn't curse him. God wouldn't allow it. The words wouldn't come out of his mouth. So the man wanted to get paid. He loved money more than he loved God. And so he told the king, well, while I can't curse them, I can tell you how to separate them from God. Send your women into their camp, and they'll go and have relationships with them. And that is sin, and that will separate the nation from God. And they did just that. So while the enemy couldn't take away their salvation, the enemy could distract them, could lead them into sin, could entice them with sin, and separate them from God. doesn't mean that they're not God's children. It just means that they're separate from God. They're no longer walking with God. And apart from God, there is no limit to the amount of sin or evil that any one of us is capable of. So, with that, we're going to go to 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read through chapter 11 and chapter 12. Um, for this situation that's taking place here in our community... This time period explains a lot of this. Um, during this time, Second Samuel, there's a man named Samuel, and his mom could not conceive children, um, and pleaded and pleaded with God, and finally was able to conceive a child. And she promised God, if you, if you let me have a child, I will dedicate him to you. And so God allows her. God allows her to, to have a child, and she, and she does what she says. She dedicates him at an early age. He was in the temple. 
She, she left him at the temple and he served in the temple all of his life. His life goes on, he grows up, and he becomes one of the judges. If you remember, we went over this a few weeks ago. God ruled with judges over the nation of Israel, not kings. God was their king. Jesus was their king. And the judges would bring matters before God, and God would help those judges discern right from wrong um, and lead the nation in that way. And that was the intent. That was God's original plan of how this government should take place over the nation of Israel, that he would be their king, that the judges would come to God with differences and matters of dispute, and God would lead and guide them to lead and guide the nation. And then, at the end of Samuel's life, the people didn't want a judge anymore. Um, They were concerned that Samuel's sons would be the next judges. They were looking at the here and now, what was in front of them, and not the bigger picture, what God had planned. So they wanted a king. Over and over again, they wanted a king. And God gave them the desires of their hearts, but warned them, a king's not what you want. A king is going to take everything you have. A king is going to tax you heavily. A king is going to place great burdens on you. But regardless, they wanted a king. So God gave them Saul. And we can see where Saul starts off his life as as a man wanting to please God, serving God, following God. But Saul is enticed by, by power and many other things, and he begins to drift away from God. He begins to distance himself from God by disobeying God and multiple times um, by dabbling in things that he shouldn't dabble in. Um, And we're going to read through that. And so after King Saul, God raised up King David. And actually God raised up King David long before Saul um, ever died and, and anointed David and but David would be the next king. And David was known as a great king, a man after God's own heart. This is the same David that fought Goliath. This is the David and Goliath David. Goes on to be King David. Um, the Bible will refer to him as a man after God's own heart, but also as David, the king of Israel, known as the king forever. Um, that's how highly regarded he is in God's word. Um, that when they speak of Jesus, they speak of Jesus coming through King David's line. That's how important lineage is very important to the, to the Jews and to the Bible, to God. And God associates his son, the savior of the world, coming through King David's line. But David didn't always live a good life. Um, David found himself deep, deep into sin. And that's what we're going to get into now. So David has, has lived his life. Saul has, at this point in the Bible, has passed away. David is, is king of Israel, has ruled and reigned, and had many great conquests. Um, and now has found himself at a point where he's no longer following the things that he should. He's allowed himself to, to sit idly with too much time on his hands, too much time to think when... He should have been out um, with the other men in battle when that's what the other kings would do during this time of the season, this time of the year. They would be out in battle with their men. David chose to stay home, stay with idle, idle time in his, in his life. Lots of time to think, not walking with God, but beginning to fall into sin and separate himself from God slowly, slowly, slowly um, over time. And that that separation 
even this David, this man after God's own heart, this great king of Israel, all that he did, all that he was a part of, even this man was able to find himself at a great, great distance from God, far, far from, from who God had called him to be and who he once was. And that's what we're going to pick up here in 2 Samuel chapter 11. We're going to read through chapter 11 and chapter 12. So, 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting here in verse 1. In the spring of the year, when kings normally went out to war... David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amorites. They destroyed the Amorite army and laid siege on the city of Rahab. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. So David has stayed behind. He's living this this life that he doesn't, his job, his purpose as king, um, his duties, he's, he's kind of left behind. He's, he's left that to someone else, and now he's at the palace. And I think this is very important. We are called for a purpose, and we are called to work. We're not called to, to sit around to, to take naps during the day while rest is okay. It's not what we're called for. And when that becomes your regular routine, you're opening yourselves up to you're opening yourselves up to evil desires and temptations that wouldn't normally be there. That wouldn't normally be there when your life is filled with plan and purpose. When you get out of bed every day because you have to go to work, um, because you have a plan and purpose at work, because they you have um, tasks and orders and things to do that your life is filled with obligations at work as well as obligations at home, whether that's with children or with a house, with household chores, with animals, with whatever that is. Our lives shouldn't be day after day, end after end, no purpose, um, lazy, laying around. It breeds all kinds of areas for the enemy to distract us, to deceive us, to manipulate us, and to enter sin into our lives. And so I think that's important here. And I think it's important why God brings us up here in the beginning of chapter 11. So I'll continue on here in verse 2. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. He looked over the city and noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent some someone out to find who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So this should have been a, a huge red flag to David. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men. David had served with him, fought battles with him. David knew who this man was, and now was told that he, this woman that he saw bathing was his wife. Now the the reason she's out on the rooftop or is that that was how it worked in those days. Your baths were on the rooftop and that the 
sun would heat up the water and not completely unusual, I would say, but where David's look and glances and longing became sinful. Um, and now he's, he's further into that sin. He's inquiring about her. And then we'll continue on here in verse four. Then David sent messengers to get her and she came to the palace. He slept with her. She had just completed her purification rite after her menstrual period. She had returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered she was pregnant, she sent a message saying, I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along, how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah did not go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home to wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear I would never do such a thing. So this man Uriah is an honorable man while the men of Israel are out sleeping in tents and and fighting. He says, it's not right for me to be at home, for me to go home and enjoy the comforts of home, a a home-cooked meal, wine, uh, the company of my wife, I'll do no such thing. I'll sleep outside still, even here at the palace, away from the comforts while my men are not being comforted either, while those that I serve with are not being comforted either. So this man, Uriah, is a very honorable man. So we'll continue on verse 12. Well, stay here today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner. And got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guards. So, the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. So Uriah is going to deliver this letter. The letter instructed Joab, Station Uriah in the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. Then... Pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where, where he, knew the enemy, he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. Then Joab sent a battle report to David. He told his messenger, report all the news of the battle to the king. But he might get angry and ask, why did the troops get so close to the city? Didn't they know they would be shooting from the walls? Wasn't Abimelech, son of Gideon, killed at Thebes by a woman who threw a millstone down on him from the wall? Why would you get so close to the wall? Then tell him, Uriah the Hittite was killed too. 
So the messenger went to Jerusalem and gave a complete report to David. The enemy came out against us in the open fields, he said, and as we chased them back to the city gate, the archers on the wall shot arrows at us. Some of the king's men were killed, including Uriah the Hittite. Well, tell Joab not to be discouraged, David said. The sword devours this one today and that one tomorrow. Fight harder next time and conquer the city. When Uriah's wife heard of her heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace, and she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David had done. So David, this mighty man of God, has found himself very far apart from God. Remember, far enough apart from God, there is no sin he's not capable of. There's no sin any of us aren't capable of. While David, this mighty man of God, this man after God's own heart, finds himself longing, lusting after this woman, having an affair with this woman, getting this woman pregnant, and then instead of coming clean, confessing his sin, conspires to murder her husband and has her husband murdered. And again, apart from God, far enough apart from God, no matter who you are, believer or unbeliever, there is no limit to the amount of sin that one is capable of. So let's continue on here in chapter 12. So the Lord sent Nathan, the prophet, to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One, one was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb. He had bought, he raised that little lamb, and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day, a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one stolen and and to have for the I'm going to read that in verse 6 again. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. So David wants to says at first this man should die and then replace it with four times. I mean this is going above and beyond what God's law says. David's furious, you know, how could this happen? Who would do such an awful thing and and wants wants justice, right? And how often do we want that? When something, something we do wrong, what do we ask for? We ask God for mercy. Please don't, don't, don't destroy us, Lord. Don't cast us away from you. Please grant us mercy. But when someone else does something wrong, what do we ask for? We demand that we want justice. We want vengeance. We want you to, to, to double the punishment. We want you to go above and beyond, God. You know, This isn't right. You should make this right, God. And that's what David's saying. So then we'll continue on here in verse 7. Then Nathan said to David, 
you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you, King of Israel, and saved you from the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Amorites and stole his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes. Then he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. So God is very displeased with David. And while people may want justice and want vengeance, God is going to discipline David in the way that he sees fit. That God is going to chasten him um, just as God would his, any of his other children. When you become a, children, a child of God and you fall into sin, yes, God will chasten you. Um, but that is also a good thing. Because you know at that point you are his children, that you are saved, that there's nothing you can do to separate you from his love. Even when you fall into great, grotesque, awful sins, there's still nothing you can do to separate yourself from God's love. And while he may chasten David, while he may discipline him, um, and others may look at it and say, well, he should have done more. This wasn't enough. You know, he, Others may take the attitude that David had earlier in these verses that this man should die, that David should die and, and repay four times what he stole. And that wasn't God's judgment or God's decision. God will do what he sees fit and his ways are always perfect and his ways are always right. So we'll continue on here in chapter 12, verse 13. Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, Yes, but the Lord has forgiven you, and you won't die for this sin. So even though David has sinned, the Lord has forgiven. God, is, God will forgive. There is no sin that God can't forgive us for, that God won't forgive us for. No sin too great that Jesus' blood on the cross can't take away. The only sin, we've been over this, that's unforgivable, is the sin of the, un, of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And we've explained what that is. The Holy Spirit's first job is to convict us of our singular sin of not believing in Jesus. So therefore, the only sin that is unforgivable is the sin of not believing in Jesus, of living your whole life that way, all the way to the end, all the way till your death. And if that's how it is, if that's the life you've lived, a life you wanted separate from God, and he will grant you what you want. And you will spend eternity separate from him in hell. So we'll continue on here in verse 14. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the Lord by doing this, your child will die. After Nathan returned to his home, the Lord sent a deadly illness to the child of David and Uriah's wife. So David and Uriah 
that got together. She became pregnant. This is the child that is being spoken of here. David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and lay night and lay all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, the child died. David's advisors were afraid to tell him. He wouldn't listen to reason while the child was ill. They said, what drastic thing will he do when we tell him the child is dead? When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. The child, when David, let me start verse 19 over again. When David saw them whispering, he realized what had happened. Is the child dead? He asked. Yes, they replied. He is dead. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes. He went into the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. After that, he refute, he returned to the palace and was served food and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was still living, you wept and refused to eat. But now that the child is dead, you have stopped your mourning and are eating again? David replied, I fasted and wept while the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. So this is important, this concept here. One that God will forgive David for these awful sins. There's no sin that God won't forgive. But the other one is this child. This child that, that David and Bathsheba had. That, that God removed the child from, from life here on earth. And while that sounds awful to us, David makes it very clear while he mourned and pleaded with God to let the child live, that perhaps God would be gracious to me, he said, right? It's still about David at this point. It's not about the child. David's concerned with himself. Perhaps the Lord would be gracious to him, to David, and let the child live. But he doesn't. The Lord does what he says. He removes the child from David. And what does David say? I can't bring the child back. But one day I will go to him. So he can't come to me, but I will go to him. And where is that that he's going to go to him? He's going to go to him in heaven. And while all, in, all of scripture, from Genesis to Revelation, is inspired by God, it is God's word. God's word breathed while men wrote it down. And God is making it clear to us. What happens to a child when they die? What happens to a child that dies that doesn't grasp the concept of, of who Jesus is or hasn't asked Jesus into their life? What happens to that child? Um, and the answer is very clear right here. That child is in heaven with Jesus. And that child goes to be with Jesus. And that's very important that we understand that. And it's very important that we understand that God gave us this story for a reason, for multiple reasons. There's multiple things that we learn out of this, but that this is the important one. So we'll finish off Second Samuel um, chapter 12, verse 24. Actually, we'll just... Go through two more verses. Then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And David named him Solomon. The Lord loved the child 
and sent word through Nathan the prophet that they should name him Jedidiah, which means beloved to the Lord, as the Lord had commanded. So even after this, what does, what does God do? God blesses them with another child. And through this child, through Solomon, is the, the family line that God would bring his son Jesus into the world. That God would save the world through this family line, through this son Solomon. So, well, we understand that the, God teaches us here that we can be forgiven. That Yes, we can be Christian men and women, live godly lives, and still fall into great sins if we're not careful. When we're not doing the things that God's asked us to do, when we're not seeking God first and foremost in our lives. But even after that, we can still be forgiven for those awful things. And that God doesn't despise us and throw us away and reject us. That he still loves us and he comforts us um, and he is still with us. And here we read how God still continued to bless David and Bathsheba with another son. But I want to go to Psalm 51. So David wrote this psalm. David wrote many of the psalms, many praises to God. David was known as being a worship leader, a man who worshiped God. He did that through the psalms and praises. Um, David is recorded in the Bible as, as singing, you know, singing loudly to God. That was one of the other things that David was known for. So David writes this psalm, Psalm 51, and we won't read all of it. But we'll, we'll read a few of the verses out of it um, during this time period in his life, during the time period we just read about. So Psalm 51, verse, we'll go one through three here. For the choir director, a psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt. Purify me from my sin. For I recognized my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. So when God forgives, he removes it from our record. He doesn't hold it over our heads. He washes us clean. He doesn't bring it up again. When we read about David in the New Testament, we don't read about this. We read about him being a man after God's own heart, right? That's how God forgives. He removes it from our record. And, and the same here. He removes it from David's record. He doesn't bring it up again. He doesn't hold it over David's head. He loves David. That He loves his son Solomon. Um, so we'll continue. We'll jump down a few verses, though, to, to verse 10. So Psalm 51, verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. That's an important one, and we'll come back to it. And make me willing to obey you. Then I will teach your ways to rebels. And they will return to you. Forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves. Then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness. So David is asking God to forgive him for shedding blood. 
um, for committing these awful sins, to remove it from his record. David's asking if, if God can, can find in his heart to forgive him, that David will go on and, and teach others who are in sin the ways of God, how gracious and merciful he is. And I tell you that that's what God is after. Well, God's out not after the perfect heart. God is after a heart that is after him. God is concerned with what our hearts do. And here David shows a heart of repentance, a heart of, I'm sorry, not that I got caught, not that I um, caused trouble for other people. I'm sorry that I sinned against you, God. I'm sorry that I hurt you, God. And I don't want to do that again. And David would repent from his sin. He would do a 180. He would turn back around and begin walking with God. But an important part here is in verse 12. And it's, Restore to me the joy of your salvation, God. Not restore to me your salvation, God, because David never lost his salvation. But restore to him the joy of it. David lost his joy in his salvation in the midst of all his sin, in in the midst of his um, separation from God, he lost the joy of it, but he never lost his salvation. And that's a very important part. This salvation, this Jesus coming into your life, he doesn't leave you or abandon you when you screw up, even when you screw up very large ways, when you make big, big mistakes, when you find yourself in grotesque, awful sins, God doesn't leave you still. He doesn't leave you where you are. He still loves you. He still is for you. He still sent his son to die for those awful, grotesque sins. That Jesus Christ took the penalty of those sins on the cross. That he is the only one that can remove those sins from your record because of his sacrifice on the cross. Those sins, while are are awful and all sin has a penalty, Jesus paid those penalties for us. And there's no way that we can ever repay him The closest we can ever come to that is to live our lives out for him, to live the rest of our lives serving him, a life doing what he's called us to do, following him when it's not easy, because he did was was because Jesus did what wasn't easy. Also, he went to the cross for each one of us. So, I do want to go to First Timothy chapter two verses one. We're going to go over a few verses here in 1st Timothy Um, and then we're going to look quickly at Saul and his life um, a few verses in his life so 1st Timothy chapter 2 we're probably going to go with verse 1 through 6 I urge you first of all to pray for all people ask God to help them intercede on their behalf Give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked with godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God, our Savior. This is what pleases Jesus. Pray for all people. Intercede for them on their behalf. Give thanks for them. Pray for the kings and rulers, um, all of them, all who are in authority. That's what pleases God. So when, when we're wondering, what do we do in this life? This is it right here. Continue on here in verse 4. So verse 3 was, that's what pleases our Savior Jesus. Verse 4 goes on to, 
Jesus, who wants everyone to be saved and understand the truth. For there is only one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Jesus Christ. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. So what does Jesus want in verse 4? Jesus wants everyone to be saved. Not a select few, not a choice few that he's picked out. He wants everyone to be saved. When God sent his son into the, into the world, we read that in John chapter 3, he sent his son for everyone. Everyone has the opportunity to, to receive Jesus, to receive that eternal life, to receive this forgiveness that we see in David's life, to receive this repentant heart. Everyone has that opportunity. There's no one that's denied it. And when you've received Jesus, there's nothing that can separate you from him. Not even these awful, awful sins that we are capable of committing even after becoming believers. Far enough apart from God, there's no amount of sin we're not capable of. So we're going to go back to Samuel. But we're going to go to 1 Samuel chapter 31. So the other part of all that's taking place is this idea of suicide and and. The Catholic Church teaches that suicide is the unforgivable sin because you committed this self-murder, this murder, and you didn't have a chance to ask for forgiveness for it because you were gone. And while the Bible does not support that at all, remember many people, many religions, many organizations have taken one area of scripture and wrote doctrines around it but didn't consult all of the Bible. Didn't look at from Genesis to Revelation. What does all of God's word say? And that's very important. That's where they make their mistake. All, the whole Bible is meant to lead us and guide us. Not one individual verse or one small area of scripture. We need to put it all into context. And the context is from Genesis to Revelation, this word of God points us to Jesus Christ and who he is. His love for us, his undeniable sacrifice for the forgiveness of each and every one of our sins. That's who he is, and that's what this word points us to. So, this idea of suicide is something that is very common in our, in our society, and probably has been for a long time, but is more so now with social media. It's more talked about, more news reports come out, of, of hurting others and then hurt and then hurting yourself, then killing yourself. Um, and it is something that the people struggle with that I would say everyone struggles with this thought of, of self harm, maybe not to the point of suicide, but I would encourage each and every person who has those thoughts to reach out to someone, someone you love, someone, you know, someone you can trust and talk to them about that. Reach out to someone. If you don't have that someone, Reach out to the suicide hotline. Reach out to your local police department. Reach out to someone. There are many people out there who are listening, who want to hear, who want to help you. And I would not encourage you don't believe the lies of the enemy. Satan wants to kill, steal, and destroy. And Satan wants to accuse you that this is the only way out when that is not the case. That's not true. Very rarely is this the only way out. There are many, many solutions that God can bring to the table. Don't believe the lies of Satan that say this is the only way out. This is the only way you can handle this. So with that in mind, we're going to look at, at Saul's life. King Saul, 
his life ends with him killing himself. And we're going to look at that and, and how does God view that. Um, so just a few here, more verses here. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 31, starting here in verse 1. So at this point in Saul's life, the, he is far apart from God. He's for, been king of Israel for 40 years now. Um, and, and he's disobeyed God over and over again, refused to repent, um, and has now found himself surrounded by the Philistines. Um, and, and this is the, the end for Saul in his reign. So, 1 Samuel chapter 31, starting here in verse 1. Now the Philistines attacked Israel, and the men of Israel fled before them. Many were slaughtered on the slopes of Mount Geboa. The Philistines closed in on Saul and his sons, and they killed three, they killed three of his sons, Jonathan, Abdimadad, and Malashuka. The fighting grew fierce around Saul, and the Philistine archers caught up with him and wounded him severely. Saul groaned to his armor-bearer, Take your sword and kill me before these pagan Philistines come to run me through and taunt and torture me. But the armor-bearer was afraid and would not do it. So Saul took his own sword and fell on it. When the armor-bearer realized that Saul was dead, he fell on his sword and died beside the king. So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all of his troops died together that same day. So we read here that Saul took his own life. Um, well, suicide is, is the murder of yourself. It's never okay. It's never condoned by God. It's never acceptable. But it is also not unforgivable. So to get a better understanding of this, we're going to have to go back to 1 Samuel chapter 28. So we'll go back a few chapters. So this 1 Samuel chapter 31, we read the attack of the Philistines. Chapter 28 is what took place the day before. Um, and what took place the day before was Saul went and found a medium, someone who could conjure up the dead. Um, and this is a real thing. God's word makes it clear not to do this. We're not to do it for a reason that's not good for us. But God conjuring up the dead is something that can happen. And when we read about that here in God's word. So we're going to read about that. And what Saul does is he conjures up Samuel. He brings Samuel back from the dead to, to get advice from him. And we're going to read what Samuel's word says. Or what Samuel told Saul from the dead. So 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 15. This is Samuel speaking. Why have you disturbed me by calling me back? Samuel asked Saul. Because I am in deep trouble, Saul replied. The Philistines are at war with me and God has left me and won't reply by prophets or dreams. So I have called for you to tell me what to do. But Samuel replied, why ask me since the Lord has left you and has become your enemy? The Lord has done just as he said he would. He has torn the kingdom from you and given it to your rival David. 
The Lord has done this with you today because you refuse to carry out his fierce anger against the the Amalekites. What's more, the Lord will hand you and the army of Israel over to the Philistines tomorrow, and you and your sons will be here with me. The Lord will bring down the entire army of Israel in defeat. So Samuel, at this time, is in the is in the place of the dead. In the in, in the earth, there's two compartments: the place of the righteous dead and the place of the unrighteous dead. And this is before Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, before the gates of heaven were opened up to us, before that paradise was accessible to us. This is where everyone went. And Samuel is in the place of the righteous dead. I think I can feel very confident in that. And when it says, you can question whether or not Saul was a righteous man or was he saved or not, that's not for us to judge. But I feel also very confident that Jonathan, Saul's son, was a righteous man and that he was to be in the place of the righteous dead. So when the, the God's word says here that Saul and his sons will be with Samuel tomorrow, I take that to mean that Saul and his sons are in the place of the righteous dead, that suicide was not the the unforgivable sin, that the only unforgivable sin is our unbelief in Jesus, and that Saul, being a man who once served God, went on to live this life, this unrepentant life, and further and further and further away from God, God still saved him, still allowed him into his into his kingdom that god never leaves us or abandons us once we've received him so i think there's many other places where suicide i shouldn't say many there's probably six other people that we read about who 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 killed themselves Um, and while some were men of god we can read that once served god but at some point walked away at some point separated themselves from god at some point began to um, distance themselves with sin um, and with wicked ways of living. And while God still may allow them into his kingdom, they're going to come with very little rewards, very little to show for it. But they are in his kingdom. They are part of that. Nothing can remove them from his kingdom. And God is going to make all right. He's going to right all the wrongs. Um, We'll finish up here with these last two areas. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 6 through 8. So we are always confident, even though we know that as long as we live in these bodies, we are not at home with the Lord. For we live by believing, not by seeing. Yes, we are fully confident, and we would rather be away from these earthly bodies, for then we will be at home with the Lord. So when we're away from these earthly bodies, he's speaking to believers here, then we will be at home with the Lord. The New King James Version says, when we are absent from our bodies, we are present with the Lord. When we die, when we leave our bodies here, at that moment, we are present with the Lord instantly. No no waiting period, no purgatory. We're present with the Lord. We're going to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. And this is where we're in today. So all praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in our troubles so that we can comfort others. When they are troubled, 
we will be able to give them the same comfort God gives us. So we've read before that God is love. We read here that God is the source of all comfort, that he is a merciful father, that he loves his children, even when his children make mistakes. Even when my children make mistakes, I still love them. I may have to discipline them. I still love them. I still love them deeply. God loves them even more than I do. And that God will make right all the wrongs. That God is sovereign, that he can see the beginning from the end, that When awful things happen in our lives, when awful tragedies take place, there's two ways we can go. We can blame God or we can walk with God, knowing that that on the other side, he offers eternity with him, eternity with Jesus, eternity in paradise, eternity free from death, from sin, from hurt, from pain, that when we die, when we believe in Jesus, that that's where we go. That when a child dies, before being able to make that choice of who Jesus is to them, that that's where they go. That God is the ultimate loving, compassionate, caring God. That he receives all who love him. And that when children who die, all, all children who die, end up in the presence of God. End up with Jesus for all of eternity. And I take comfort in that, knowing that no matter what the circumstance, that all children end up in the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. So where is God in the midst of tragedy in this world with all these things that are going on? God is still on the throne. For the believer, Romans 8, 28, God is working out everything for good. Even when it's hard to see, when it's hard to understand on this side of heaven, God is still in, is still The same God, the same loving God who loves us, who loves all of his children, who wants everyone on this planet to be saved. Everyone who has ever created, he wants them to be saved. That never changes. And what are we to do? We're to comfort others because God is comforting us. We can find comfort in God's words and his promises and how he leads and guides us through the midst of tragedies. And then we take that comfort and we share it with others. So... With that, that's where we end today. You guys have any questions? All right. Well, if there's no questions, let's pray. Dear Father, I just thank you for this day. Father, I thank you for this time to come together. Um, in the midst of, of tragedy, of awful things that, that can happen in this world that we live in, that... You are sovereign, that you reign, that you are still on the throne, that while we don't understand it, while we can look short-sightedly, you see the bigger picture, you see the eternal picture, and that you are working out all things for good for all of your believers. And I'm thankful for that. I just ask that you would help us to put our trust and our faith in you today, that you would comfort those who are affected by this directly, comfort those who, in our community, that you would comfort the the police officers that responded to this, the sheriff's department, the Elizabeth police department who responded to this call, that you would protect them, that you would watch over them and their families, Lord. I just ask that you would guide them, that you would strengthen their faith in you in a way that only you can. And when things seem hopeless, you are the God of hope. You are the God of comfort. You are love. And I'm thankful for that. 
I ask that you would lead us and guide us to be lights and witnesses this week in our in our lives at work, in our lives at home, in our lives in our community. And that you would open up those divine appointments, the people that you want us to speak with, that we'd be encouraged by them, that we would encourage them, that we would be comforted by those those children of yours and that we would also help to comfort them. I ask that you would um, that you would watch over all of us, that you would um, you would continue to watch over Christina and her heart and you would guide the doctors. You would continue to watch over Bonnie and her surgeries and you would guide the doctors. You would bring healing. You would continue to watch over my mom. You would bring healing to her during her treatments. You would guide the doctors. That You would um, open their eyes to, to what needs to be done and what doesn't. Um, you would guide them through that. And bring healing to Joey's knees. You would... Um, Watch over those who are going through the PTSD and the EMDR counseling, that you would guide them, that you would give them the patience to continue through, that you would um, just speak to their their lives and their hearts, that you would open them up to you, that you would um, strengthen Ming this week, that you would guide him, that you would um, give us the right words to speak to those around us. Um, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your love your mercy, your grace. And most of all, Jesus, I thank you for your sacrifice on the cross, for the forgiveness of each and every one of our sins. No matter what it is, there's no sin too great that your love can't take away. I'm thankful for that. It's in Jesus' mighty name I pray all these things. Amen.